much, uh, Gat. I, I guess that I should probably start by, um, by thanking you uh, for inviting me, um, by thanking Kate and, and everybody else that is here um, on a Wednesday evening. Um, I mean, it's quite cold outside, so I understand why everybody's here. But um, yeah, uh, so I, I'm going to try to to speak um, not for too long, not to to uh, move the chairs in, in the room, uh, so to speak. Uh, but but just to give you an idea of what um, how this book came into into me and and what the book is about, <clears throat> and. Um, and then we can we can have a, a conversation if you wish. I think it's it's, it's always much more um, exciting to to have the opportunity to exchange ideas as well, which is which is what we all want in a way. So I should probably start by by um, start with a confession uh, by by um, admitting that um, when I started writing this book, when I started researching for this book, I had no idea that I would be presenting um, my findings and presenting the book uh, in the middle of a, of a global pandemic. This came completely uh, uh, unexpectedly, as you can imagine, but it has uh, somehow been a, a bit of a revelation because I have, um, I have the opportunity to talk about this a few times already uh, with colleagues online uh, since, since the book came out. The book came out in the middle of a pandemic already. And, um, and, and, and the one thing that I have found quite um, um, challenging is to talk about the stuff that I saw in the documents, the stuff I, I wrote about, and, and then to, to relate to this at a personal level, the same kinds of anxieties, the, the same kind of fears that the protagonists of, of the story I was trying to tell uh, had, uh, somehow they have become part of my, of my daily life. Right? And it's not only the fears for myself, it's a fear for the people I love, for my friends, et cetera, et cetera. So to a certain extent, there have been kind of an overlap between um, uh, my academic life and, and my personal life because of this book and because of the pandemic, as you can imagine. <clears throat> I assure you though, I didn't do this on purpose. This is a, a, a total coincidence. Um, so there are a number of things that I want to talk about and, and two or three that I actually saying that they are quite important. And at the end, I want to, to, um, I, I want to finish with, with uh, some lessons that I think we can um, take out of, of um, learning from 19th century uh, history, especially the history of uh, disease and the, the struggle against disease in, in the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, but the one thing that I think is, is very important here before I, I set out on, on this uh, uh, talk is, is to highlight that there is quite a lot that we learn from history. And um, many of the things that, that are happening around us today, the way that people and authorities have been dealing with this pandemic um, actually leave much to be desired when you compare them with the ways in which people and authorities dealt with epidemics in the 19th century, which is kind of shocking because there is this Whiggish narrative of historical progress, right? In which you're supposed, things are supposed to be moving towards, towards the future, towards, towards progress. And this is not always the, the reality. And I think that this is um, something we can take from this, but I will, I will get there. Anyway, so probably I should start by, by telling you why 
I wrote this book um, for quite quite a number of years. I have been researching on the history of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. I, I began with, with Cuba, Brazil, and then I moved to Africa, and now I'm all over the place, uh, so to speak. And um, from the beginning, I found quite interesting um, any material that I found, any, any, any uh, information that I found in these sources that related to medical knowledge or diseases or anything that related to, to medical history in general. I, I, I had a bit of, a, of a, a morbid fascination with this. I don't know why I cannot explain it because I was not really interested in medical history. Uh, I, 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 I haven't planned to have a career in medical history, but somehow it happened. So <clears throat> at some point I found myself with this huge amount of information and, and I, I, I came to a crossroad in which I had to decide whether I wanted to um, use this information as, as bits and bots in, in the other research I was doing in the other articles or books I was writing, or whether I wanted to um, instead use it, um, put it all together, try to, 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 to formulate a conceptual theoretical framework that would allow me to write a whole book with all that uh, stuff that I have. Um, and this is what I ended up doing. It, it was a long, a, a long uh, a process um, until I, I decided, until I made the decision, it was pretty much swayed by a, an editor. I, I have to say, it was an editor, the one who told me, this is a book, you need to write a book. And, and I listened to her and, and here we are. Um, there, were, there, there, there were a couple of things that actually really tempted me that I felt that, that I was ready to do. And one of them, the, probably the most important one, that sway, sway me in that direction was the opportunity to write circumatlantic history, which is something I always wanted to do. And I'm, I'm for, for um, those of you who know the, the work of David, David Armitage, you know how he conceptualized the, the, the history of Atlantic. And circumatlantic history is the one that brings all different histories together into a, a you know, and the collage that, that um, incorporate different empires, different colonies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I had done the other two type of histories that he mentioned before. I had done um, uh, uh, cis-Atlantic history and, and transatlantic history. In my last book before this one, I compare um, warfare actions, African warfare actions in, in Bahia, in Brazil and Cuba. So this was really a challenge and it was something that really tempted me. And, and I found it very exciting to be able to work with sources from different uh, parts of the Atlantic, different archives in different languages which in itself became a problem, um, especially when I hit the wall of Dutch. Um, but but it, was, it was a very exciting um, thing to do and I, I enjoy it uh, tremendously, if, if the, that can be said when you're studying a topic like this one. There was also the historiographical question, which, mean, which for me meant that looking at the 19th century and more specifically to the post 87, although I, I focus even more in the post-1820 um, slave trade, presented me with, with an even um, uh, more challenging opportunity uh, in the sense that most of the studies on, on medical history in the transatlantic slave trade have been done for the previous period, up to 1807, give or take. There are reasons for that. The, the, the main reason being, of course, that up to a point, all the slave trade was legal. So there was quite a lot of... Um, paperwork associated with the transatlantic slave trade in British, French, Spanish, uh, Portuguese archives. That is, it, it was relatively um, um, 
accessible. Uh, but for the pulsating 07, pulsating 20 period, it, it became more difficult to, to gather all these documents, uh, especially those documents that related directly to the, the, the slave traders or the human traffickers, right? Because they, they were forced to operate in an illegal world in which everything, especially papers, needed to be thrown overboard whenever they were captured or, or needed to be burned or destroyed in general. So working with all this became, became kind of a challenge, but again, it was a, a good one to the point that I think I, I found more than what I needed to, um, to take this, this project forward. I tried to avoid following this uh, romantic narrative of the white um, European or Westerner medical practitioner or medical officer or medical missionary um, arriving into a place that was um, uh, uh, involved in one way or another with the, this Atlantic human trafficking and then to portray them as saviors, as heroes. I think that, uh, that we have had quite a lot of that and, and um, especially when it comes to medical history, I, I, I saw quite a lot of that. I rather try to focus on ordinary people, on the histories of people who were um, um, affected by these diseases, who had to um, collaborate, they had to come together to face what it was a common enemy. <clears throat> Very often, um, something that I found, and if you read the book, you will see that this, this jump out quite, quite uh, clearly, is that uh, enemies very often they came together to work against, um, uh, in order to stop these diseases from spreading, uh, which was, I mean, diseases were pretty much the only common enemy that the slave traders and, and um, uh, those who were trying to, to abolish the slave trade had in common. One thing that I tried to do as well was to bring non-Western practitioners into the fold, which was again, one of the most difficult things to do because as you can imagine, most of the information that we have about say African medical practitioners is um, uh, filtered through European or, or Western sources. So it had descriptions or narratives that were uh, written by visitors or by, 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 by Western Europeans who were living in, in, in the contact zones in these regions where there was a contact between, between different peoples in the, in the world. So um, I also try to stay clear of following this or offering this Whiggish narrative of the rise of good medicine, which I was referring before, this, this narrative of things move forward, this, uh, a, a good medicine um, and, and progress of medical knowledge that can be seen through discoveries, through breakthroughs, um, through, for instance, the dawn of epidemiology that, that takes place into this period, that happens in this period. Um, um, and instead, I actually try to see this as more as how medical knowledge was, was pretty much intertwined um, with other knowledges as well, um, the knowledge of botany, um, uh, practical knowledge related to other, to other um, aspects of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and I try to see, as I said before, the, the diseases as, as a common enemy for all these, these transatlantic um, uh, actors um, and how disease actually forced all of them to work together in the face of, of necessity. Of, of the, the, there was no other option through 
um, through this. Now, the slave trade, of course, was a quintessential, um, um, a quintessential means to disseminating disease. I mean, there were people being trafficked from one place to another. There were exchanges um, uh, all over the places, all over the place. There were exchanges of, of knowledge, but there were also senses of diseases, of course, and there were, and this, these exchanges took place through uh, contact, personal contact, or, or, or um, uh, by, by affecting environments as well. So these people coming together in these specific places, very often cities actually, or towns or, or places where there were um, concentrations of, of um, human concentration, uh, are going to create disease environments that are going to be central to understand what happens um, here. So by focusing on how these Atlantic actors interacted in these contact zones, and now the contact zone is, is a concept that was coined by Mary Louise Pratt um, about 20 years ago, and, and I use it here more as a slave trade contact zone, which is much more specific, a place where people actually share um, and colonial and um, actors that come together to, to interact with each other. Um, I try to see how they share fragmentary medical knowledge um, uh, in, in the hope to observe the ways in which medical cultures are going to change throughout the period. Um, one thing that was unexpected from me, but it was also unexpected from those who implemented abolition in the 19th century Atlantic slave trade, is that the very implementation, the very way in which abolition policies are going to be put into practice in the Atlantic is going to lead to unexpected results. And one of them is that it's going to increase human suffering. And, and again, I, I think that the book actually uh, portrays this quite clear throughout this period as the slave trades go into hiding, as um, human groups of human beings who are going to be trafficked across the Atlantic have to wait for months and months at a time uh, in, in slave barracks in the, in the coast of Africa, waiting to be um, uh, put on a ship and sent to the Americas. Disease is going to spread, um, famine is going to happen. So there is quite a lot of human trafficking that is going to be a direct result of the British, the French, the Americans patrolling um, the, the transatlantic slave trade. And one of the, the, the means or the reasons why this happens is precisely because of diseases um, uh, are going to, to spread very often epidemic diseases. Very often epidemics are going to break, to break out and affect both as slave traders and those who are being <clears throat> um, trade. There is one more aspect here, which is quite interesting. And again, it's going to affect everybody. Usually when we refer to, to, to the 19th century, to the medical history of the 19th century, um, uh, this, this period is usually referred to as the um, the age of heroic medicine because of the medical practices that are taking place in this period and the medical treatments. Um, in the transatlantic slave trade, the level of experimentation, of medical experimentation that is going to take place, um, take this to a whole different level. This is the age of heroic medicine on steroids. It's, it's just brutal. Um, and this also is, is I hope I, I managed to show it quite well. So all these interactions, are going to generate new fragments of medical knowledge uh, that eventually uh, are going to become part of the, of the medical corpus of the 19th century. And, and the many of them are still with us today. So how do I do this? And I'm going to start moving forward a little bit now. And I want to 
bother you too much. So I look at four specific aspects of the struggle against disease, of the fight against disease. So I pretty much build the book around these four aspects. The first one is prophylaxis, or in other words, um, um, how to stop diseases from coming in. And once they are in, how to stop them from spreading. And this is of course something that I'm pretty sure all, all the 60 people we are in this in this chat are very aware of how it is done today. Um, uh, funny enough, things haven't changed that much. We still use quarantines. We still um, do social engineering to control disease. We still um, rely heavily on public policy that sometimes is well informed by science, by, by, by medical knowledge, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's informed um, uh, by who your, your, your chums are. Um, and of course, there is also the, 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 the issue of that you have, you have to address what happens to human beings, but also what happens to animals sometimes and the environment more generally. In the 19th century, miasma theory was, was prevalent um, among all the theories, but this one was quite prevalent. So um, um, the emanations from the soil, from the earth, um, they were considered to be uh, one of the main reasons, probably one of the main reasons why, why diseases happen, especially fevers. And, and as such, they were, um, they needed to be policed, they needed to be um, uh, cured as well, they needed to be treated, etc. So that's one thing, prophylaxis. And then I, I look at diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment. Now, diagnosis is, is again, um, similar um, to what we see today, but, but at the time there was much less information to diagnose diseases. And, and diagnosis, I cannot, I cannot stress enough how important it is in, in the medical processes is, is the moment in which you name the disease that somebody has. So until you don't know what is what you have, you are struggling. The, the medical practitioner is struggling and the, the person who has a disease is struggling to know exactly what do they have and, and how to treat it. Until, until you identify what the disease is, you cannot really know how to treat it well. And, and this is a period in which nosology or the, the naming of diseases was quite limited yet because um, there, there was a whole um, um, wild guessing uh, uh, sitting in place. There was not much more they could do. So prognosis was related to diagnosis. So once you would be able to identify a disease, you were more likely to, to make a call and decide uh, what way would go or not. And treatment as well, uh, since um, uh, once you, you knew what the disease was, you were able to, to know exactly what sort of uh, medicine or, or treatment or therapies could be administered so that, that the person could get better or not. So in some cases you knew um, that the person was not going to get better. So all these things are gonna take place. Um, I should probably um, stress here that all this is going to happen on a, on a um, trial and error basis. This is a time, as I said before, where um, uh, the, 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 the age of epidemiology is just getting started. And, and so they are pretty much guessing. And I know there are a couple of colleagues here in, in this, um, in this uh, chat that, that have opinions on this. So I'm happy to, to talk about this later on. Um, so once I had this frame, I actually tried to focus on three specific areas um, where these knowledge exchanges, where these um, practices and this, this struggle and disease are happening during the period. 
I look at the slave ships and factories, um, which were <clears throat> renowned for having poor medical facilities, uh, where medical provision was poor as well, uh, where overcrowding, poor hygiene were um, uh, a rule. I look at anti-slave trade patrols, ships from different nations, the Portuguese, the French, the American, the British, and they were the first line of containment against these diseases. And very often those who were on the ships would get sick as uh, sometimes even before they came into contact with, um, with the slave ships. And once they, they, they came into contact with um, slave crews and, 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 and the slave on the ships, very often they, they actually suffered just as much um, the, the slave traders and, and, and those who were enslaved. And I also look at this, the anti-slave trade recession centers, as I call them, or those places where um, Africans were taken after being um, seized at sea and, and liberated by, by the British or the French or any other nation. So in these places, medical provision was a little bit better. There was a better organization. The medical infrastructure <clears throat> and the medical supplies were better as well, but they were not perfect by any means, right? There, there was quite a lot of um, issues there. So to start wrapping up this, um, as I said before, there are, there are quite a few things that I want, I want to drive home before I finish. The first one is that in these environments and, and these people, um, the way they are going to interact with each other is um, through, they, they are going to be more often than not uh, quite open-minded. They are gonna try to, to learn from each other. Europeans, Westerners are gonna try to learn as much as they can very often from Africans and vice versa. Um, uh, something that I keep thinking about, and sorry to stop, to stop here, but something I keep thinking about is how quickly um, anyone in the Atlantic war in this time who learned about the, existing, uh, the, the existence of inoculation or vaccination in smallpox would move towards implementing a vaccination policy or an inoculation policy. Everybody was sold from the start. Um, comparing it to how we look at vaccines today and, and, and all the, the, the skepticism that, that we are seeing from different quarters. Um, so cooperation is going to be the order of the day. These, these people are going to talk to each other. They are going to cooperate. Um, they are going to see past the differences. Slave traders who are going to be captured by the British or the French or the Portuguese, they are going to be sometimes left on board of the ships so that they help with the medical provision because they, they have, they're the one who have the, the medicines on board already. They know exactly what they have, how to use it, et cetera, et cetera. This is quite common. Um, and also experimentation is gonna be part of, of, of the, the, the this environment. It's going to be very common because that's the only way that they, they can understand and they can try to, to figure out what ways may work and what ways may not work, what therapies may work and what, which ones they want. Um, I really think that these exchanges were crucial for um, the changes that are gonna take place in the medical cultures in the Atlantic. And they were deeply affected, um, they were deeply determined by the medical practices, by the medical knowledge that no Western practitioners are going to bring into the equation. And that goes from the knowledge of medical 
um, uh, plans for pharmacopoeia that is going to, to really change the way some diseases are treated to um, surgical knowledge as well. So there is quite a lot that needs to be um, uh, uh, incorporated in, in, in that needs to be taken into consideration when we are talking about medicine in the Atlantic war in this, in this period. Also, and I try to emphasize this through other work, medical knowledge, as I said before, when we talk about quarantines, um, when we talk about social policies, public policy, sorry, when we talk about, about uh, the ways uh, um, social engineering take place during epidemics or, or when there is a fear of an epidemic, medical knowledge is going to become a weapon of sorts. Um, Alison Bashford at some point wrote something like, that, like, like the, the lines um, of hygiene um, in many different parts of the world, when there are epidemics, they, they are turned into boundaries of rules. In the Atlantic, this is going to, you, you can see this almost everywhere, and this is going to be done through two main means. One of them is trade, free trade, if you wish, which is going to be implemented. Um, uh, it's, it's going to be free for those who are implementing it, but not for those who are forced to free trade. And when they don't want to free trade, when they don't want to, to when they don't, they don't allow this free trade to change their, their societies and their cultures, there are always the gunboats to solve the problem. And this is going to be seen in, in this period. So um, this, this dream or no dream of hygienic containment um, hit an expansionist agenda. Um, this agenda was manifested in, in access to new markets were very necessary. And the classic example, the, or the, the, the central example to see how this developed is once quinine, once, once medical practitioners have figured out how to use quinine, or sulfate of quinine to be precise, to treat malaria fevers, and the, the mortality of Westerners in Africa diminished significantly in the 1850s, this paved the way to um, um, the African, the, the scramble for Africa in the 1880s and the penetration of, of Africa by, by different European powers. Uh, it's also, of course, going to manifest itself through the control of populations and um, populations that are already within Western enclaves. And I use the word Western because the United States are involved there, but it's mostly Europeans. And, um, and, and once these enclaves are in place, it's going to manifest itself through territorial expansion. So all these things are going to be, to be part of this um, medical history of, of the period. <clears throat> and I'm gonna close with what I promised at the beginning, um, the comparison between how our ancestors dealt with disease and how we deal with disease today, because I really think it's, it's fundamental. The first one, as I said before, and I mentioned it a few times, that is cooperation. Cooperation is key in the fight against disease, right? Um, and yet, in the world that we are living today, we have seen one of the main, but the most important um, uh, world power walk away from, from the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. We have seen how countries, instead of coming together, they are trying to fight on their own. We are seeing this here, we are seeing this in other places in the world. Um, it is remarkable, but, but in the 19th century, in the slave trade, people who were enslaving other people, maybe because they have um, um, uh, a financial investment in this, but very often you see actually human beings caring for other human beings, including those who are enslaving each other. Um, so caring is going to be part of this story as well, although brutality and violence are also part of the story. This is not always the case, obviously. Um, 
And, and I really think that this is something that, that again, um, we need to sort, to sort out today. It's not, it's not clear that we are caring for each other the way we should. Um, not only, not, not only to, to care about our own health, but to actually think about the vulnerable around us and, and to take care of them as well. And the last thing I think is that the most obvious of them is that they actually, back in the 19th century, they were very keen on following any scientific um, new information that came up. All these people, they tried to keep to date, especially medical practitioners, they tried to stay um, <clears throat> up to date with um, the state of the art medical knowledge or medical treatments, right? So they were, they were very keen on listening to the experts. And, and again, as you know, this is not always the case today. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much. Great. Good. That's uh, extremely interesting, Manuel. And of course, uh, amazingly relevant. So I would encourage people to uh, ask questions in the chat uh, and raise points. Uh, I will, of course, start off. Um, one of the things that you emphasize, of course, and it's really interesting, is African practitioners, non-Western practitioners, and uh, their knowledge. And one of the questions which you raised uh, just now, but which I'd like to, to pursue, is how seriously was their knowledge taken? Uh, that idea. Yeah. Well, it was a combination. There was, um, there were, um, there were visitors or or Westerners who who came into contact with African practitioners in Africa and in the African diaspora, both, and they were very keen of learning from them. They 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 uh, very quickly realized that these these people they had something to offer that was just as important as as what they knew. And I mean they were wise enough to realize that they have been dealing with certain diseases for, for, for millennia and, and that these were diseases that were new to them and they had to listen to the, the experience of these people. You can see this, for instance, in, in um, uh, stuff like, for instance, the surgical process to extract the, the guinea worm. You can see this in the way they treat uh, certain fevers. You can see this in the way um, uh, they are going to to um, use a number of, of plants to, to deal with diseases. And you, you can see British, French, Portuguese practitioners, medical practitioners, or even non-practitioners, people who have an interest, but they are not uh, medical practitioners, interiorizing this. And, and very often giving these people the opportunity to practice in, in these um, environments that were control, controlled either by slave traders or um, those who were trying to abolish the slave trade. So you have African practitioners in, in reception centers from Sierra Leone to Santa Elena. You have them on the slave ships, uh, both uh, on, on the slave ships, but you also get them in anti-slave trade patrol ships. Uh, you get them on both sides of the Atlantic. So they are taken very seriously by quite a significant number, I would say, of, of, um, of colleagues, if you wish. How I said that, there is also a lot of um, uh, very subjective, um, denigrating uh, commentary taking place throughout the period in which Africa and the Africans, including African practitioners, are always seen as backward, as ignorant. Uh, sometimes there is, there is something really, really good happening, like a medical treatment, but this medical treatment is also combined by a dance 
And just because of that, they just dismiss the whole thing. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a bit of, of both that. Very good. So I have a question from Tim Lockley for you. Tim says, or asks, is there evidence of Africans communicating about the differences in the various African fevers? Malaria is not yellow fever, for instance, though they might display similar symptoms during the course of the illness. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I think that um, I think that the Africans didn't have a clue, as the Europeans didn't have a clue um, when it came to fevers. My my feeling by reading the sources is that, first of all, and you know this very well because you have worked on this team, um, yellow fever is something that is going to attack Africans in the childhood mostly. Um, I, I found several testimonies from practitioners from different backgrounds saying that they have never seen a case of yellow fever in, in, on a slave ship. Um, and, and mostly the reason for that is, you know, because they already had it and, and those who were going to die already died. Um, and, and then they made the comparison saying, well, you know, the African ships are arriving, <clears throat> no African has yellow fever, and then the Europeans arrive here and immediately they fall ill. Having said that, medical practitioners are struggling of all backgrounds, they are struggling to separate these fevers from each other. I actually find even more um, and, and even closer resemblance between malaria and um, typhoid fever. I think they're even closer, the symptoms are even closer. And, and you can see medical practitioners treating them both with the same um, uh, therapies and having different results. Of course, if you start giving quinine to somebody who has malaria, this person is likely to improve. If you give it to somebody who has typhoid, you're probably gonna kill the person. Uh, <laughs> so, but they could not tell one, one freedom from the other. With, with typhus, there was a little bit of difference because there were, there were things that happened to your skin that they are different, including your hair and all that, but typhoid and, and, and malaria were quite close as well. So I don't think African practitioners in particular are going to, I haven't seen anything, let, let me put it this way. I don't want to dismiss them, but I haven't seen any, any piece of evidence that tells me that they were able to inform Europeans about the difference between yellow fever and malaria, for example, because I don't think that that anybody at the time was really capable, fully capable, of separating the different fevers. Excellent. Um, the the question, and I think I've asked you this before, but I think it might interest other people. The question of inoculation. So when we go to get inoculated, we get a vaccine shot. I mean, it's controlled yeah. to the ultimate level, which you know. In the 19th century, surely that wasn't possible. So, what what kind of procedures do we know uh, about both African practitioners and also European? Um, again, this is this is um, the age of heroic medicine on steroids. So there is no control. There is um, a, a, a concerted effort to inoculate and to vaccinate people as much as possible. And even slave traders are doing this. I actually. This, this is a bit of an embarrass, embarrassing confession that I have to make. I, I am sure I found a case in which the owner of a slave ship was telling the captain of the slave ship, you have all you need to vaccinate the Africans, please do. But then I never found the reference again. So I didn't go, I didn't make it into a book. So I know I, I saw it. I know I wrote it down, but I never found it. Even today, I haven't found it. You saw what? The what? Was it was a reference of a slave, of the captain, of the owner of a slave ship telling the captain, 
you have everything you need to vaccinate every African you put on board of the ship. Please do. Uh-huh. It's in the parliamentary papers, but I have never seen it again. I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, okay. So basically, the, the, the narratives that you see are very straightforward. So people are going, first of all, the, the medical practitioners are the first to take, to take the, the, the first ones to, to, to dive into it. They vaccinate themselves, they vaccinate the children, and then they proceed to, um, to vaccinate everybody else, to set the, the, the example. Whenever they were somewhere else and people immediately tried to adopt the process as well. But, but there is something interesting here, and it's, I had quite a lot of conversations with um, Catherine Poe about this. In some parts of Africa, at least, inoculation was already common, was known, and it was known well. So it's not like the Europeans just arrived in the 18th or the 19th century with this brand new stuff and everybody would take it. No, there were people who were already familiar with this. So it, it's not, every, every, we usually talk about Africa and there is no Africa, there are different places in Africa. And depending on the place, the, the knowledge of inoculation was there already or not. But again, it was, it was adopted without much hesitation. Very good. Uh, Patricia Martins Marcos asks this question. Are there reformist, perhaps abolitionist even texts hinging on improving condition or conditions aboard ships to reduce mortality rates? I think, I think there is not a single text, but almost every text makes a reference to this at some point, especially from the 1820s, 1830s. If you, if you look at, at Clarkson, if you look at uh, Buxton, uh, forward Buxton, if you look at, um, uh, what's the name of the other abolitionists from this period, the famous one. <clears throat> there is someone else, I don't remember his name now. They are, all, they are all mentioning this. At some point they, they do mention this. And if you remember in the expedition to the Niger River in 1841, the ships are going to be um, uh, prepared by, by Dr. Reed they're going to be fitted with ventilation systems as well. So uh, they see the need to get rid of diseases as a, as a very necessary step to both abolish the slave trade and to civilize Africa and the Africans. So this, this always go hand in hand, of course. Very good. Thank so Paolo Drino asks you this question. Can you say a bit more about the analytical work, the analytic work, that the term contact zones does in your book. It has always seemed to me, it has always seemed to me to be a pretty banal <laughs> descriptive category masquerading as a profound insight, but perhaps you endow it, he says, with more meaning. <laughs> I have no idea, Paulo, but I, I tried to answer your question. So basically, so as you know, Mary Louise Prada, I'm gonna to try to quote this verbatim, but I, I'm pretty terrible at remembering things verbatim, but she actually conceptualized this, um, this uh, context as, as spaces of colonial encounters where people come together. So I'm thinking of a city like, I don't know, Rio Janeiro, where um, uh, sailors, prostitutes, um, uh, soldiers, um, officers, uh, enslaved Africans and enslaved Creole people coming together. Everybody's coming together. They are sharing food, they are sharing drinks, they are sharing fluids, they are sharing everything. So in the slave trade, in the, in the transatlantic slave trade, when you're thinking about disease, they, they are absolutely central to understand how um, both diseases, 
and knowledge are going to circulate, how they are going to, to um, be transmitted from one person to another. So in, in, in a way, the way I see it, they are, they are the points of contact. They are really, really important for the disease to transmit. And, and obviously, you know how this goes now, you know, it, like really this pandemic makes things easier for me sometimes, like you open up and immediately you get the, another wave going up with COVID, it's the same. Um, uh, people, when people come together, diseases circulated, they, they fester in, as, from human contact. Uh, but also the only way that people can actually find out of what is happening in other parts of the world with diseases is by talking to each other and by reading books that they need to be passed from hand to hand or sold and bought. And these things happen in, this, in these spaces. So I don't know if I give them any meaning <laughs> to be honest, but you know, man, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> okay. Uh, Gene Stubbs asks you this question. Um, yeah. does, your, does your research shed new light on Finley's breakthrough on yellow fever in Cuba? Um, not really, Jing. I mean, this is, this is much earlier. And um, again, as, as um, Tim pretty much put it before, this, these fevers are all mixed with each other. Although yellow fever at some point, once the, the black vomit begins, it becomes um, different from the other fevers. You can see in this period things happening that they're going to inform the decisions of Finley and, and, and others in his time, for instance. Um, and I actually mentioned this in my book, there is this uh, a, a Royal Navy surgeon. Uh, there, are, there are huge discussions between contagionists and anti-contagionists in the period. And the two diseases that are going to be at the center of these discussions are the bubonic plague and yellow fever. And this guy is trying to make a point that the yellow fever is not contagious because he has been in the middle of a, probably the largest epidemic of yellow fever that ever took place in the Atlantic, 1828 to 1830. And he was on a in which lots of people die, lots and lots and lots of people die. And he had been treating these people. He didn't get the disease. And, they, and, and he knows that it's not contagious the way contagious was normally used at the time, right? So he actually drinks a pint, and this is difficult even to say, but it's not gonna be easy to hear. He drinks a pint of vomit of a dying yellow fever patient to make the point that he's not gonna get sick. And I think somebody has pulled a similar stunt in the US before him. Um, and he doesn't get sick. He doesn't die of yellow fever. He has many years later. So there are, there are like dating, dating stuff as well that, that is going to inform the way Finley is going to, to work. The one thing that may actually inform to a certain extent Finley's understanding of, of fevers is that his father or his grandfather arrived in Cuba in the 1830s as the doctor, as a medical doctor of the British and Spanish, um, Anglo-Spanish uh, mixed commission court. And he's going to give up on, on this and he's going to buy a plantation and settle. So he, he went to Cuba as an abolitionist and he's going to end up as a, as a planter. Um, and of course he had to deal with yellow fever from that time. And I think that his father was also a medical doctor who also dealt with yellow fever. So there is, there is knowledge in the family um, about this before, but it's, it's much earlier in the period. Jean, if you unmute yourself, you can... Uh... Yeah, hi. Um, this is much better, Manuel. <laughs> um, it's just I was thinking that the Finlay story, as it's told in Cuba, doesn't really um, 
at least to my knowledge, link it to slavery and the slave trade. But in a sense, it's very telling and poignant that Finlay should be the first to have that breakthrough when Cuba, along with Brazil, was the last to abolish slavery. Um, and now you've added that other element of um, the grandfather, if you want. Um, is this, um, I mean, do you think this might actually spur some new research in Cuba that, that links how the medical profession um, arose out of situations like the one you describe in the book? I don't know, Ian, to be honest. Um, it will, it, it, uh, it's very difficult to know what, what kind of impact the book is going to have, especially when it's in English. And <clears throat> especially with such, as you know, getting materials to Cuba is normally difficult. Now it's even more. I mean, I have the copies of my book still at home. You know, I managed to get two away. And, and it's, it's because of with this pandemic, there, is, there are no really lots of ways of um, uh, letting knowledge circulate in the old fashioned. But um, you, you can always hope, right? And there is definitely a connection of what's happening before with what happened after. Yellow fever epidemics, by the way, I'm not the one who has studied them properly in Cuba. There, is, uh, there are two Cubans, Adrián López Denis and Fernando Larrazaín, La I think is his name. They both have studied the 1833 epidemic and the 1852 epidemic. So there, there is more there uh, already about yellow fever. But to establish a link between Finley in the 1880s, which is when he finally has a breakthrough, 1881, 1882, if I recall well. And, and uh, at this early time, it's, it's difficult. The one thing that I'm quite surprised about, I was, I was um, about 18 months ago, I was in, in India, in Kolkata. And they have this medical, um, uh, like a tropical medical uh, school in Kolkata. And almost at the same time as Finley and these American doctors make, have this breakthrough in Cuba in the 1890s, they are doing exactly the same in India with malaria. So these things are happening simultaneously. And they have never, I haven't seen any book that actually brings them together. So that, that will be, it, I think, a much more interesting project of bringing how medical tropical medicine is going to be developing at the same time in the Caribbean, in Liverpool, and in India. I, I find this, and also in West Africa, of course, I find this very exciting. I, I don't think I can do it, but it's a project for somebody else. I don't understand anything about the late 19th century. That's unfortunate. Well, it's something, for work, something for you to work on. Perhaps, oh. as a, as a, unless the other people have other questions, a, a final question from me. So these, these anti-slavery centers, Sierra Leone, Havana, I mean, you did imply that the, the medical um, situation for uh, enslaved Africans was certainly better in those situations. So perhaps you could expand on the kind of medical treatment in those places. St. Helena, for example. Yeah. Um, well, it was, that, that's actually quite an interesting question. I could, I could talk for hours about this. Um, each of them is going to have its own um, idiosyncratic way of going about things. When it's in a place like Santa Elena that has been studied by Andrew Pearson, mm. um, it's quite unique in the sense that Santa Elena is so isolated from, from the rest of the Atlantic that things there are done in a different way. But then you have a place like Sierra Leone um, where they, they, they have this hospital in, in Kisi to the east of um, Freetown, but they also have the liberated African um, 
reception center downtown Freetown, and in both places they are going to be administering um, medical care. And, and this, the, the, the way things go there, the discussions, the medical discussions that are taking place there about the, where, where the hospital should be before the hospital in Kisi is established in 1829 by, by Denham, just before he died, there is going to be another, another hospital in Leicester, which is in, in a mountain. And the hospital is going to be abandoned because there was too much humidity and it was falling apart. But there, is, there was this idea that the higher you go, higher up you go, the least, the least you were likely to get uh, sick. So these are really interesting informed discussions at the time that then are going to filter to medical practitioners in other parts of, of West Africa. So you have people in, in the Gambia, in, in Dakar, in, well, not Dakar, actually, in, in Gore and St. Louis, and, and in, in Accra, well, Cape Coast. Um, and they are actually going to incorporate this discussion in, in, into their own interpretation of how, um, which are the best means to, to treat disease. But then again, you can compare the Portuguese, for instance, in Bissau, how the Portuguese in Bissau are going to be dealing with, with disease, with how the British in, are dealing with disease in, in, in Freetown, or how they, the, the, the French are dealing with disease in Korea. And you will see that they are all doing pretty similar things. They are all resorting to quarantines wherever necessary. They are all issuing uh, bills of health for every ship that arrives and every ship that it leaves. Mm -hmm. um, there are, there are um, uh, measures in place that they're supposed to um, uh, deal with, with the main uh, medical issues of the time. Having said that, because these were unpredictable diseases, there were things that would happen out of nowhere and for which people were not prepared. So these were the challenging bits. Sometimes as, uh, uh, the, the, the slave traders or, or the Royal Navy ships or the Portuguese ships would be blamed for epidemics arriving. Sometimes they were right. <clears throat> I think that a case in question is, is the, 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 fever, the yellow fever epidemic of 1828 to 30. The epidemic apparently, apparently starts in Havana, is taking a ship to Barcelona, and from Barcelona start going down all the south coast of Europe, it reaches Gibraltar, and from there it arrived in Africa, West Africa. Um, so they had the point that the slave ships were maybe uh, bringing the, um, the yellow fever. And then you have the other side of the Atlantic where things are a little bit more organized. But again, for instance, you have a place like, like the south of Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, for example, is supposed to be the healthiest place in, in the continent at the time. There are no diseases there. So when they finally get yellow fever in the 1840s, they freak out in a way that it's, it, it almost beggars belief. Um, and, and they really don't know what to do. They don't know what measures to take. They start blaming the yellow fever and they, there is a French doctor here who is responsible for this, but anyway, it's not the Brazilian, but they, they embrace this on the slave ships. They said that the yellow fever is created by the rotten wood on, on the, in the hold of the slave ships. And they go with this, they, 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 they run with it. Everybody else around the world is telling you, is telling them, this is not it, but they decide that this is it. And still they carry on, um, they stick with, with the, this uh, French doctor's uh, ideas for a while. So it's, it, it really, it varies from place to place. It varies from 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 um, uh, spot to spot. And of course, the more um, developed the place was, the better the infrastructure. Then the, uh, the the more likely they were to be well connected and to have uh, access to state of the art knowledge, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and then put it into practice, of course. Very good. So the final two questions, I think, so that we don't totally exhaust you. Uh, Steve says, "Where is the best place to buy your book?" 
uh, but Kate, uh, Kate Quinn says, can you say more about the link between the profit motive and any advances in the treatment of disease? Okay, let me let me go with Steve first. Well, Steve, I think that probably the best place is Yale University Press. <laughs> they have a shop in the UK, yale.ac.co.uk, I think, or something like that. Um, so you can buy it there. Um, there are other places, of course. Um, and to Kate, ah, well, you know, the slave trade was a huge business. It was human trafficking. Human trafficking today is in a very profitable business. Back then, it was a very profitable business as well. Um, the abolition of the slave trade, it was also a very profitable business. The crews of the slave of the of the anti-slave trade patrols they would get paid money for every um, liberated African. They would get paid money for the ships that were captured. They would be either sold in their entirety to the same slave traders sometimes, or they would be destroyed or broken um, and sold by pieces. But any money that was to be made from that would go to the captain and the crews of the ships. So there was a huge interest in keeping as many Africans alive. There were humanitarian reasons, and I don't want to dismiss them because I think that, that it's very easy to say that these people were only interested in money. But and, and we have to, to, to um, keep in mind here that, yeah, they may have been interested in money because we, are, we all are pretty much. But they are risking their life, and they are really, really doing their very best to keep these people alive. And that means putting the life in, in, in the line as well. Um, so to a certain extent, uh, both sides of the conflict, the, the Marcus Redeker has referred to a slave trade as, as, as a conflict, like it's in a war conflict, the both sides of a war. Both sides of this conflict have the same sort of interest in keeping um, the Africans alive. For one of them is merchandise that they are going to sell at the highest bidder and the healthiest they are, the healthier they are, the, the, the more they fetch. And for the other ones, the more you, you manage to, um, to, to keep alive, not, the higher the, the amount of money you're going to take per head. But also for um, uh, European settlements or even Americans in Monrovia, settlements in Africa, bringing these people back, they, this, this, they, they would eventually become either um, soldiers, as Tim Lockley, who is somewhere here, I think he's still, um, has studied quite well recently, an amazing book, by the way, you should read it, or they will become, uh, they will be trained as, as priests or as uh, medical practitioners. You know, Africans very often were used as, as medical personnel because they had already had yellow fever and smallpox. So were immune to both diseases. So they will be trained uh, as well. Um, and they will work the land. I mean, in, in Sierra Leone is the classic case for this. But also, if you think about Santa Elena, I have, I have um, uh, a, a master student who is writing an amazing dissertation about this right now. They will, from Santa Elena, will be sent to the to British West Indies, right? Again, as, as laborer. This was free, uh, not free, it was cheap labor as well. So there was a profit almost in every corner of this conflict. Uh, so, um... To conclude, Steve has put on the chat uh, the site for Yale University Press in the UK, um, and and Tim has said his book is uh, CUP, a little pricey, uh, but 
suggest that you ask your libraries to buy it. Um, it remains me actually for me, Manuel, to thank you very much, to thank all the people who, okay. who came to the webinar and, and those who asked questions and those who participated generally. And uh, it was really fascinating. Uh, it's not the first time, as you know, I've heard it, but it's still interesting and very novel. And um, I should probably just say uh, as a final point that our next uh, Caribbean webinar will be on March 10th. Uh, it will be given by Nicole Wilson uh, on an equally interesting topic, excavating the histories, histories of Haiti's women revolutionaries. So we hope you, Manuel, that you and others will be able to join us. But for the moment, thank you very much. And we hope we can see you in person sometime soon. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you.